I appreciate Joel um, preaching last week. Uh, what an incredible message he brought to us. If you haven't listened to it, weren't able to be here, I encourage you to listen to that message, Fed My Soul, this week. And um, I'm very grateful for it. Church family, if you would, open up in your copy of God's Word to Psalm chapter 139. Psalm chapter 139 is going to be our text for today. The title of our message is The Greatness of Excuse me, the greatness and grace of God. The greatness and grace of God. Psalm chapter 139. I'm going to begin by reading from God's Word. And so I encourage you to follow along in your copy as I read. This is the Word of God. Psalm chapter 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord for His church today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you guard our hearts and minds today, would you guard my words as I seek to preach this passage? Father, we want to see and be drawn to and believe only what is true. Lord, we know that your word is true. Father, we pray that your spirit would speak your word into our hearts and lives and do the work that only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In a recent survey of people who say they spend regular time with God, 16% of women and 21% of men say that as they spend that personal time with God, 
that they regularly think about the attributes or the characteristics of God. Now, before the men start thinking they're doing better because they're at 21 percent and the women were at 16 percent. First of all, let me say that's statistically speaking, not much of a difference. Um, But that survey also said that women are more likely to spend time with God to begin with. So nobody gets to pat themselves on the back here. Um, that's another topic in and of itself. But my point in sharing that statistic with you, 16% of women, 21% of men who are spending time with God say they're regular spending time thinking about the attributes, the characteristics of God. I share that with you not to show any difference between men and women there, but to focus on what it reveals about all of us, about both men and women. Less than a quarter of the men and women in this survey saying that they spend time with God on a regular basis, less than a quarter of them say that when they spend time with God, they spend time thinking about the attributes of God. That means that there are a lot of Christians trying to grow in their relationship with God without giving much thought as to who the God is that they are trying to relate to. Now, as you can tell, that's not going to work out too well for us. Now, perhaps one thing this reveals is that our quiet times or devotional times or personal time with God, however you call that, what that perhaps reveals that that often they're more about us than they are about God. More about us feeling better about ourselves or checking off something on our New Year's resolution to do list or trying to twist God's arm to give us something that we think we need, but really has no place in serving the promises or the mission of God. But whatever the reason, we can be sure of this. Failing to spend time thinking biblically about who God is will only hinder and never help us grow in fellowship with God, which should be the goal of a personal time with the Lord to begin with. Church, I believe the general call of Psalm chapter 139 for our lives is this. Think deeply of the greatness of God so you can be drawn deeper into fellowship with God. The call for us today is to think deeply about God and about who he is, who he's revealed himself to to be in his word so that we can then be drawn into a deeper fellowship with God. We're never going to be drawn into deeper fellowship with God apart from knowledge of who God is. And knowledge of who God is is not meant to simply build up our knowledge in our minds, but is meant to draw us into deeper fellowship with the Lord. Psalm chapter 139, David is reflecting on the greatness of God. This psalm has been described as one of the loftiest texts ever written about God. It is full of the grandeur, and and I don't think this is a word, but I'm going to say it, the godness of God. It's full of just the, the who God is, the godness of him. In other words, these attributes we see in Psalm chapter 139, on the one hand, set him apart from us. It's far greater than us, far beyond us. Think about it. Are you all knowing? No, but God is. Are you all present? No, but God is. Are you all powerful? No, but God is. Are you The standard of perfect holiness. No. But God is. 
I'm not any of those things, but God is. And yet, here's the, here's the great thing about this psalm. The point of this psalm is not for us to consider the attributes of God and how great He is, and then to distance ourselves from God because of how great He is and how different He is from us, but it is to allow His greatness to reveal our deep need for Him and for us to see that even though His greatness is more than we can even comprehend, He is able and willing to draw draw near to us and to provide for our deepest needs so that we can live in fellowship with this great and almighty God. The beauty of the psalm is that it is meant to draw us into this deep fellowship with the God whose greatness ought to destroy us. And so it is a psalm not only about God's greatness, but church is a psalm about God's great grace towards us. As we work our way through this psalm, I want to do so in three parts. There's a lot here in this psalm. We're trying to do it in as organized a fashion so that so that even as we're overwhelmed by the greatness of God, we can kind of keep keep straight the verses and where we're at in the passage. So um, kind of three parts here. Um, the first thing we want to do is consider God's greatness. First thing we want to do is consider God's greatness. And, and I believe this psalm reveals to us at least five truths concerning the greatness of God. So I'm going to give you five very short statements, four words each, okay, um, to, to help us consider this great God revealed to us here in Psalm chapter 139. The first is this. God's knowledge is indescribable. God's knowledge is indescribable. The psalm opens with David declaring that Yahweh, Jehovah God, O Lord, that He is the one true God, that He has searched and known Him. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. I said it a moment ago, but just notice that this psalm even begins by speaking about God in a very personal way. And we'll see if you want to even want to glance to the very last couple of verses. It ends by speaking to God in a very personal way. And yet it's a psalm filled with the greatness and, and in a way, otherness of who God is. And so, as I said in the introduction, even though the psalm teaches us about how great God is and how different he is compared to us, the point from the very beginning is not to view this great God as though he is so far above us that he has nothing to do with us. That he's not involved in our lives at all. Church, the almighty God of the universe is searching and examining us. He is knowing us in a very personal way. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. And we see this this personal nature of God's great knowledge in David's attempt to describe God's indescribable knowledge. He describes it, but we'll see by the end. He says, I I can't even do it. It's indescribable. Look at verses two through four. Look at how we try how he how he describes God's knowledge. You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my paths and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Just think about what David is saying there. God knows David's every action, every thought and every word. As David is writing this psalm, this song to the Lord, he is considering that God knows everything about him. And church, the same is true of you and me. God knows everything about you and about me. Notice that God's knowledge of us is even greater than our knowledge of ourselves. Not only does God know what we say, God knows what we are going to say before we ever even say it. 
And then using his perfect knowledge of David, here all of a sudden, see how we're going to go from the personal, how, how, how close God is to us, to how great he is, to back right back to how personal he is. After reflecting on, the, on how incredible God's knowledge is, um, God, God, we see, uses that perfect knowledge to do what? To care and guard David. Look, look at verse 5. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. He's not talking about God coming to attack him here. The picture here is of God guarding David from any attacks, attacks that might sneak up from behind him and attacks that may be laying out in front of him, ready to harm him. You hem me in behind and before. And in that phrase, lay your hand upon me. It's not a lay your hand upon me to smack me around kind of lay your hand upon me. This is a phrase that's used of blessing and care. For instance, like when Jacob laid his hands on Manasseh and Ephraim, his grandsons who he had adopted as his sons, to do what? To, to curse them? No, to bless them. That's what, that's what this phrase means, to lay his hands upon him. It's a gentle blessing from the Lord. Friend, just pause for a moment and consider the greatness of God's knowledge. We're going to go back and forth between the greatness and the, the, the personal nature of God towards us. Consider his greatness for a moment. God never learns anything. Nothing is ever new knowledge to God. On the other hand, when we're born, we know nothing. We're learning our entire lives. And and if we're honest, when we die, no matter how much we've learned during our time here on this earth, we still die knowing uh, with what we don't know far outweighing what we do know. There's so much more about the world that we don't know. Compared to what we do know, not for God. He knows it all. And notice where this leaves David and where it should leave us. Standing in awe of God's incredible knowledge. Verse 6. Here we get the indescribable part. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. It's the the greatness of God. And and it's David saying, I can't even even put it in. I'm trying to describe it here, but it's too high for me. It's too wonderful for me. I cannot attain it. The Apostle Paul had a similar experience as he meditated upon God's grand plan of salvation drawn up before the foundation of the world, carried out through human history, accomplished through the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of the Son of God, resulting in the eternal rescue of Jew and Gentile from all around the world. Paul wrote this after his explanation of the gospel in Romans, Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how insulting Searchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. In other words, God's knowledge is just indescribable. Brothers and sisters, when was the last time you stood in awe and were, rend- and were rendered speechless at the knowledge our God possesses? When was the last time I stood in awe and was rendered speechless considering the great knowledge of our God? And to think that so often we think that we know better than God. That's what sin is. And we think that we know better than God. This God who knows everything. And then to think that God has used his knowledge to plan salvation for sinners like you and me who think we know better than him. To think that God has made a way for us to be able to draw near and fellowship with him, the all-knowing God who sees and knows all of our sin. Friend, when was the last time you found comfort in the truth that though you don't know everything, that God who searches hearts And who knows us does know everything. And he is watching over his children, guarding us, hemming us in before and behind, laying his gentle hand upon us. He is doing that. 
with perfect knowledge. Which means you can trust Him today. You can rely upon Him. You can take Him at His word. You can follow Him with confidence. Knowing that He knows everything. And the One who knows everything is leading you. God's knowledge is indescribable. The second thing we learn about God's greatness is this, church. God's presence is inescapable. God's presence is inescapable. David moves immediately from the omniscience of God. Uh, omniscience of God, that's a word that means, omniscient means all-knowing. You may see that from time to time, so I want to share that with you. It's a word that means all-knowing, and it's used to describe God. But David moves from the omniscience of God, all-knowing, to the omnipresence of God. That's a fancy word that means that he's all-present. He moves from the all-knowing nature of God to the all-present nature of God. Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I uh, flee from your presence? And then in beautiful language, he gives the answer. Now, I'm going to give you the answer in one word. Nowhere. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? The one word answer is nowhere. But thankfully, David doesn't describe it in just one word. He describes it in the most incredible way. Verses 8 through 10. He says, if I ascend to heaven... You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, Sheol's another word for the grave. You are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. What David just did is to describe for us every direction that you could go from the place where he was standing there in the in the land of Israel. Up to heaven. Down to the grave. Wherever east is, east to the the dawn, right? Do you see the words there where the morning dawns? That's a reference to the east. And and then west towards the uttermost parts of the sea. And that would be a reference to the Mediterranean Sea. So, So for the land of Israel, they would regard the east as the opposite direction as the Mediterranean Sea, right? In our map a little bit. And then west, they're thinking about that particular sea. So what David's doing is he's putting this, painting this picture for us um, in poetic language of up, down, east, or west, as far as you could go in any direction. It's poetic language meaning everywhere. In other words, there's no place I could go to escape the presence of God because God is everywhere. The other day, my four year old, um, she said, um, she said, Daddy, where is God? Just out of the blue, I guess just popped in her little four year old mind. She said, where's God? And so I gave the best answer I could. And I think it's the right answer. According to this text, I said, he's everywhere. He's everywhere. And so then she proceeded to run in a circle around our living room saying, he's here, he's here, he's here. So she's running around. He's here, he's here, he's here, he's here. She's running around in circles. And you know what? She's exactly right. And, and, and it wouldn't matter how, how big that circle got that she ran in. Up, down, east or west. No matter where in the world that circle extended to, she could say, he's here, he's here, he's here, he's here. And you know what? She would be right. What's the point? The point is that there's absolutely nowhere that we could escape the presence of God. And if that's not enough for us, look at verse 11. After David considers directionally where the Lord might not be, which is nowhere, because he's everywhere directionally, then he thinks about, well, maybe there's someplace too dark for God. 
Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not night to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Again, what's the point? There's absolutely nowhere, I'll say it again, that we could escape the presence of God. But notice that David in this passage is not trying to escape God's presence. He is saying this in an attitude of worship and thankfulness to God. Notice again, verse 10, no matter where he might go, he says that God would be there leading him and holding him. Again, we're just going from the greatness of God to the personal nature of God in our lives, to the greatness of God, to the personal nature of, of, of our God. He's, he's so different than us and that he's everywhere all the time. And yet he's everywhere we are as his children holding us and caring for us. Remember, the point of the psalm is not to create a gulf between us and God that leaves us separated from God, but it is to call us to draw near in fellowship to the all-present God who is drawing near in fellowship to His children, who is caring for us no matter where we go. God's presence is inescapable. Let me give you a third uh, truth we see regarding the greatness of God here in this passage. It's this, God's power is incomparable. God's power is incomparable. Now, in one sense, this next set of verses uh, is a continuation of the previous verse describing God's um, inescapable presence. But it also provides us with another uh, attribute of God's greatness. Notice verse 13 through 16. Verse 13 through 16. It's kind of like David says, remember, he was just talking about, well, maybe there's a place too dark. And then when he goes to verse 13, it's almost like he's saying, um, now, let me give you an example of a really dark place. You see that word for there in verse 13? See how it begins with the word for, for you form my inward parts. So, so he's saying maybe there's a dark place. No, there's no dark place that God's not at. Let me give you an example of a dark place where, where God is there. What is that dark place? It is a mother's womb. A mother's womb. Look at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Well, once again, we have to notice the incredible greatness of God combined with how personal this great God is. He's so great that he is present in a mother's womb. Let's go back to the all knowing with the knowledge to knit together the most incredible part of creation, a human being. And at the same time, he's incredibly personal. You cannot get more a more personal description of God's involvement in the formation of a human being. Just skip ahead to verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Notice all the, 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 the language that's used there. God is there in the womb, forming, knitting, making, weaving. That's a hands-on process. And this leads the psalmist to praise God in verse 14. He said, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. That word works makes us consider the power of God. It's a power that is incomparable to any other power in this world. So even though this description of what is happening in a mother's womb is serving as an illustration of God's omnipresence, here's the illustration of a place where God is. It's also serving to draw our attention to the sheer and utter power of our great God. Wonderful are your works. Church, no other power can compare with God's power. Just as he is omniscient, all-knowing, just as he is omnipresent, all present, God is omnipotent. That's the fancy word for all powerful. And no one else is those things. 
But it's not just this formation of a human in the mother's womb that speaks to God's power. It's also the fact that he has already has the days of that human written down before he or she is even born. Look at verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God's not like a secretary who's who's copying down what has been said. God has written them down before they have even come to pass. Oh, what knowledge, what presence, what power, church, what a God. And oh, how our culture tramples upon the wonderful work of God. We not only fail to give God the credit for what happens in a mother's womb, but we celebrate the destruction of that life being knitted together by Almighty God. Church, because there's such a great attack upon the truth that we see in these four verses here um, in the day in which we live. And therefore, there's a need for a great application of these verses by the church in this day in which we live. I plan, Lord willing, to revisit these four verses next week and make some detailed application for us as Christians who must shine as lights in a dark world when it comes to the value we place on human life. But for now, let's just be overwhelmed by the sheer power of God displayed in such a personal manner there in the womb of a mother. It's just absolutely incredible. It's incomparable. Let me give you a fourth truth we see here regarding the greatness of God. God's thoughts, church, are immeasurable. God's thoughts are immeasurable. The psalmist next turns his attention to the thoughts of God and his takeaway is that he could never begin to count God's thoughts. Verse 17 and 18, he says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I wake and I am still with you. Can you measure the sand? Who goes to the beach and sits there and tries to measure the sand? Well, you've got to be pretty bored if that's what you're doing, okay? Well, no, we don't do that. Why? It would be a waste of time to try to count every grain of sand on this earth. You couldn't do it. It's just too much. And now consider the thoughts of God. No one could ever count the thoughts of God. If we could, they would obviously number more than the grains of sand. That's David's point here. Think about it this way. Think about all of your thoughts you've ever had and will ever had. Now, now, we don't even you don't even know that. Like you don't even know the number of that. That's a lot of thoughts for most people. I've known a few people that I'm not sure that number might be kind of low, but hey, that's okay. Um, not much going on upstairs. However, for most people, we we have a lot of thoughts. Whether they're good thoughts or bad thoughts, right thoughts, wrong thoughts, we we have all kind of thoughts. We couldn't count our own. But our thoughts are limited by our limited knowledge and our limited location and our limited power. However, we're talking about the God who knows everything, about everything and about everyone. We're talking about the God who is everywhere all the time. We're talking about the God who is at work, working in the most powerful ways imaginable. So at any given moment, he knows every thought, every word, every action of every person in the world. And because he exists outside of time, he can think about all of them, past, present and future simultaneously. And that's just him thinking about humans. Add to that his thoughts about every other part of his creation. 
including the unseen realm. Thoughts about birds and fish and animals and plants and rivers and oceans and weather and stars and planets and galaxies and angels and demons and Satan and his eternal fellowship with the Father's Son and Holy Spirit. Now we see David saying, how vast is the sum of them? Church, God's thoughts are immeasurable. Let me give you a fifth truth regarding the greatness of our God that we see here in Psalm chapter 139. And it's this. God's holiness is impeccable. God's holiness is impeccable. I'm not trying to trying to impress you with fancy words today, I promise. I just figured that if I, I made this fifth one just say the word perfect, that somebody would say, why don't you make it sound like the rest? So um, I tried to make it sound like the rest. But this is a really good word. We may not use it all the time. It's a great word. You know what the word impeccable means? It means to do something to the highest standard. For instance, if I looked at a house that was being built and, and, and I said, this house, uh, the construction of that house is impeccable. Well, what do I mean by that? I mean that every foundation block, every board, every screw, every nail is perfect. No corners have been cut. No fault whatsoever can be found. It has been built to the highest standard. That is God's holiness. It is perfect in every way. And I think we see this in verses 19 through 20. Maybe not directly, but indirectly. The psalm, and maybe you notice this as as I was reading through it at the beginning, it seems to take a strange turn in verse 19. It's like the psalmist goes from just, just standing and singing this glorious hymn of praise to the Lord to calling out fire on his enemies. Right? It's like, whoa, what's going on here with David? He says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Now, I know we don't see a specific reference to God's holiness, but we do see wickedness being condemned and we see wickedness being defined as opposition to God. The wicked speak against God. The wicked are God's enemies. And so to stand in opposition to God is to be wicked. Why? Because God is holy. He is so perfect in holiness. He is the standard by which the deeds of man are measured. And he's the judge who rightly punishes all those who stand opposed to him. See, if God is not holy, then wickedness does not matter. In fact, I'm not sure we'd even be able to define it. But because the all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful God is holy, then to oppose this great God is not only wrong, but it brings great punishment. The wrath of God. So even though it's not mentioned directly, I think we can say that the psalmist must have on his mind, at least in the back of his mind, but I don't think very far in the back, the holiness of God. He's considering the holiness of God as he considers the greatness of the one true God. God's holiness is impeccable. He is perfectly holy. I said at the beginning that we were going to first consider God's greatness as we have done that. The church, as we consider that God knows everything, is everywhere, is all powerful, his thoughts cannot be measured, um, and then that that same God is holy, which means he must punish sin, then we have to move from considering God's greatness to seeing our great need. To seeing our great need. Church, our great need is a solution to our sin. 
Our great need is a solution to our sin. Why? Because sin makes it impossible for us to fellowship with the great God. Sin, sin drives us away from the presence of God. Sin drives us away from the knowledge of God that can care for us and lovingly place His hand of blessing upon us. And so we see the psalmist display now an interest, uh, excuse me, an, an, well, an interest in, in his sin all of a sudden. He, we see him with this intense desire to distance himself from sin in light of God's greatness. First, we see that he wants to distance himself from the sin around him. And so must we to distance ourselves from the sin around us. If we seek to have fellowship with this great God, we must not be friends with the enemy. We already saw the psalmist do this in verse 19, which I just read a moment ago when he said, O men of blood, he's talking about the wicked, depart from me. There's this distancing himself from the sin around him. And then notice verse 21 and 22. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Now, our first reaction to that might be, well, that doesn't seem very Christ-like. I mean, didn't Jesus tell us to love our enemies? Well, yes, he did. But there's no contradiction here. See, David in these verses is not making a decision of whether or not to be kind to people. That's not what he's doing here. He is making a decision of whose side he is going to be on. Is he going to side with the wicked who stand opposed to God? Or is he going to side with the great God who he has just described? Clearly, he is picking God's side and he wants to make that abundantly clear. This hatred that he speaks of is not an uncontrolled feeling or fit of rage, but a conscious choice to love God and hate the world rather than love the world and hate God. And friend, there is no middle ground. I like how James puts it in his letter to Christians. In James chapter 4, verse 4, we find these words. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity? Another way to say that is hatred with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Well, church, if that is true, then the opposite is true. Whoever does, we could say it the other way. Whoever desires to be a friend of God must also desire then to be an enemy of the world. That's what David is doing here. So we see that we must distance ourselves from the sin around us. But David is humble. He's not merely pointing his finger at all the sinful people around him and saying, God, that's not me. I'm distancing myself from them because I'm not a sinner. That's not what he's doing at all. He also distances himself from the sin within himself. And so must we. Look at verse 23 and 24. He says, search me, O God. And know my heart, not their heart out there, the wicked world, but know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There's a humble recognition by the psalmist that fellowship with God would not be possible if there's any sin, any grievous way in him dwelling in his heart. And the reality is that there was sin in him. And the reality is that there is sin in us for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory and the greatness and the majesty of God. 
But the problem with us seeking to distance ourselves from our sin is that we can't do it. We can seek to distance ourselves from our sin, but at the end of the day, we can't do that ourselves. And so not only must we consider God's greatness, not only must we then see our great need, but church third, we must trust God's great grace. We must trust God's great grace. We must trust the great grace of our God to provide for our great need. And that's what we see the psalmist doing in these closing verses. Verse 23 and 24. We don't see the psalmist saying, I've got to do better. I've got to get rid of my sin. I've got to act perfect so the perfect God will accept me. That's not what we see him doing in these closing verses. No, brothers and sisters, what we see the psalmist doing is crying out to the all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, holy God for help. He can't expose his sin so that he is brought to a place of repentance, but God certainly can. And so he cries out in faith, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. He can't lead himself out of sin and into the way everlasting, which is the way of righteousness. But God can. And so we see him here crying out and lead me, God, in the way everlasting, in this righteous way. You see, all of us, including David, should be counted among the wicked who deserve to be slain forever for our sin. the truth of it for us today, church. We should be counted among the wicked. We should be the one pushed away from God, rejected by Him, only experience His presence forever in the form of His wrath poured out. And if we see the sin in us, know that it is a problem, but try to distance ourselves from it ourselves, we will fail every time. And so our response must be the same as David's response. We must cry out in faith, trusting that the God who is so far above us in his knowledge and in his and in his presence and in his power and in his in his thoughts and in his holiness, that he would love us so much that he would answer that plea for help. That he would push the sin out of us without pushing us away from himself. And in place of that sin, that he would lead us in the way everlasting. That is the way of righteousness. That is the way of forgiveness and eternal life. That is the way of fellowship with God forever. So let me ask you, where does God's greatness leave you? Maybe today you think of the greatness of God and you shudder in fear because you know that you're a sinner. And you know that there's no way that you can keep your sin from God because his knowledge is indescribable. 
You know that there's no way that you can hide from God in your sin because his presence is inescapable. You you know that there's no way for you to fight back against God in your sin because his power is incomparable. You know that there's no way to outthink God, to outsmart God. Why? Because his thoughts are immeasurable. And you know there's no way that he will simply ignore your sin. Why? Because his holiness is impeccable. So does the greatness of God leave you scared today? If so, then hear this very carefully. You need the grace of God. It is your only hope. So will you trust in the grace of God? You say, what's that look like? What does it mean to trust in the grace of God? It means to trust in his work to save you. You say, well, what does that look like? It looks like Jesus coming to this earth, taking your place on the cross. So would you trust in Jesus today through Christ? We don't have to be afraid of God, even though he is so great. He has made a way for sinners to draw near to him in fellowship as he removes our sin from us. Listen, Jesus came and was counted as wicked in our place. He was slain in our place. He fought death in our place and he won because he is God. He has all the power, even power over death itself. And everyone who is in Christ is a new creation. And God welcomes us into his family to live in fellowship with him forever. And so have you trusted in God's grace? Have you trusted in Jesus? If not, do so today as he draws your heart to him. If you have trusted in Christ, then make sure you're not living life afraid of God. You you have fellowship with the one true God. Because of this great God is a personal God who loves us and cares for us and graciously keeps exposing our sin and leading us on the path of righteousness as we call out to Him humbly for help, we can enjoy fellowship with God, not walk around thinking that He's out to get us. As James Montgomery Boyce said, for the psalmist, for David here, God's omnipresence is not a threat. It is a refuge. How is that possible? Because of Jesus. So brothers and sisters in Christ, think deeply, think deeply of the greatness of God so that you can be drawn into deeper fellowship with God. And remember, his greatness is a refuge. It is a safe place. His greatness leads us into fellowship with him, but only by his grace given to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so Jesus gets all the glory and the praise. Would you pray with me? Father, in this moment, would you help us just just to be still and quiet before you and to know that you are God? God, maybe today you're drawing a a sinner's heart to you to trust in Jesus alone for salvation. If that's the case, Lord, I pray that right now they would cry out to you saying, God, I need your grace to save me from my sin. I am a sinner and I cannot distance myself from my sin on my own. And so I call out to you in faith 
trusting in Jesus for your grace to save me. And God, may all of us, those of us who have trusted in Christ for salvation, may we make this our prayer today. Search my heart, O God. See if there's any sin, any grievous way in me. Lord, by your grace, get it, up, get it out of me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me in the path of righteousness. For your name's sake, O oh Lord. All for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.